Hello, I'm Pete Raby, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ronan Dunn, who is currently the independent chairman of the board of Six Nations Rugby, overseeing the commercial marketing operations for the Six Nations Championships. He's also the non-executive director of Marks & Spencer, and as an executive, he served as the CEO of Verizon and at O2, his 15-year tenure, making him the longest-serving CEO in the British telecom industry. Ronan, real pleasure to have you here with me today. I've been looking forward to the conversation enormously. One of the things that I want to start with, and I think this conversation can go in many angles, but it's since becoming chairman of the board of the Six Nations Rugby. Has it given you any different perspective compared to the corporate world of what great leadership looks like? I'd like to assume that the corporate world versus the corporate sporting world will have quite a few big differences, but that's a bit of an assumption. So maybe we can kick off there. Well, the first thing to say is the nature of what we're trying to achieve in rugby is distinctly different. If you think about it, uh, when you build talent in a corporate organization, you're thinking of people having a 20, 30, 40-year career. You're building out skills and competencies. When you think about professional rugby, the average player might have a five to seven-year career. So the approach you need to take is fundamentally different. The second thing I would say is that sport really breaks into two component parts. It's rights management, and it's playing on the field. And they're two distinct things. So actually, Six Nations is a rights management business. It's responsible to sell the media rights and the sponsorship rights on behalf of rugby's greatest championship. So in a way, you could say we're a, distinct from a sports organization. We're actually a media and rights management organization. And I think that's something that I have a better understanding as chairman now about how you can bring these two worlds, which are actually quite distinct, and find the synergy in the middle that creates great opportunities for participants, which isn't just players. It's volunteers. It's coaches. It's referees and officials and for fans alike. And that's the exciting thing. Rugby's in a really unique point at the moment. We've got the World Cup coming up. We've had the revelation of enormous rules changes, which really for some is completely creating a very different sport to the one that they've loved and grown up in, et cetera, et cetera. How would you describe the place that rugby finds itself in right now? Well, I think the perception of most people would be that the game on the field has never been in better health. This last Six Nations was an absolutely stunning tournament. And I can say that objectively as an Ireland fan. Um, <laughs> but I think it's also fair to say that it's a game with growing pains. And those growing pains are probably across three things. Firstly, the financial model to make it economically sustainable isn't fully fledged. The balance of player welfare and player well-being is still evolving as we learn more and more about the realities of concussion and sport uh, generally and how it impacts the body. And I think the third thing is that we have an opportunity which we haven't yet fully fledged out, which is to create an unmissable experience for a wider audience in sport and particularly in the game of rugby, which almost by definition is inherently more inclusive than almost any other sport. Size, shape, everything are more than considered in the game. They're actually welcomed. You know, if you are a scrum half, you might be 65 kilos, but the guy beside you might be 140 kilos and you play together on the same team. Mm. That's an amazing opportunity for participation, both at the amateur level and at the club and professional level. I'm always really fascinated 
with the decision making behind different career moves, Ronan. And you're you've been in some big jobs. You've done a really interesting thing, which we'll touch upon shortly, and have been in a, an extremely big role as a largely UK based CEO, and then done the move to the states. So we're going to get on to speak about that, if I may, but. The big corporate jobs, O2, Verizon, very public, very established companies, and then a move away from those worlds, although, of course, they're vastly differently businesses, and into something which looks, on the face of it at least, to be really quite unique. Why Why was that a move that was the right time for you, and what was the thought process behind that? Well, the first thing to say is I've been a rugby fan all my life, so it's a good starting point <laughs> yeah. for the chairman of Six Nations. But the thing that was particularly attractive to me is the nature of professional rugby is very, very young. The game started as a professional game in 1995. Mm. So we're really in those, you know, the foothills of the growth of this game and the establishment of it with a sustainable business model. And therefore, the idea that somebody who had had the privilege to work across uh, both different geographies had an intimacy with sport from a professional point of view as sponsor of both the Arsenal team, uh, the England rugby team, and in my time in Verizon, actually the largest commercial partner of the NFL. So actually in my day job, I had the experience and understanding of the sports rights model and the sports sponsorship model. So being able to bring a passion for the game, an understanding of large commercial organizations, and some understanding of the sports financial management model actually meant that the opportunity when it came up, when CVC, the private equity house, invested in Six Nations, that created um, for the first time the opportunity for an independent chair. So it was a very exciting opportunity for me. The timing specifically coinciding with I had made a commitment to myself and my family that I would be finished full-time exec work by the time I was 60. So I just got in. I'm still on the right side of 60. So it, the timing was perfect. And it's it's a passion project, but one where I genuinely feel that the experience I have is relevant to the opportunity. What does good look like for the Six Nations? We we talk about it a lot internally, business as usual and day-to-day activity, quarter to quarter even. People largely feel comfortable with knowing what they're doing and what they're striving towards. But in something like Six Nations, it'd be fascinating to get your insight on what does good look like uh, with doing the role that you're doing now? So I see the opportunity for Six Nations to be a global showcase for the best that rugby has to offer. And in doing that, create positive outcomes for for players and officials, but also create the opportunity to attract more fans to the game. We have an amazing game that actually is well-known, deeply known in pockets of the world and completely unknown in other parts of the world. Mm. And I genuinely believe that the game, its inclusive nature, you know, uh, 15 very, very different positions on the field, the growth of the women's game, the growth of the non-contact part of the game in tag, the growth of a short format in sevens. We actually have all of the components there to build out a portfolio of unbelievable experiences that will attract people in much wider audiences than the ones that we've tapped so far. And when I say attract audience, it's not simply for the commercialization of those audiences, but it's actually to create a showcase 
for something that we believe is a fabulously both exciting and rewarding to participate in sport. It's great for health. It's great for well-being, but also it's great for developing teamship and skills and competencies that are relevant to the whole of your life. I was privileged to play rugby when I was in school. And some of the experience there of building teams, working in teams, the contribution that you make to others' success in, in the game. I think those are lessons that we can share with a much wider community. How hard is it to compete with the might of the Premier League, the might of American sport? You know, we're speaking on the day that England are battling hard against Australia in the Ashes. I know that cricket also goes through similar pains where it's whew, the firepower that these guys have got and the beast that the Premier League has become in the UK is now a globally dominant product, right? Where do you begin with trying to make sure that rugby in the Six Nations is doing is doing what it can when it's up against such vast numbers and such vast marketing spend, community projects, etc. So if I may, I'll, I'll answer that by saying something that maybe would surprise people is, I don't believe professional rugby should exist if amateur grassroots rugby didn't exist. The importance of the game is its breadth, its influence, its opportunity to bring, you know, healthy choices to people all over the world. How do we do that? Well, we showcase the best of the game. And that's one of the main purposes of professional rugby. Whereas I think some other sports have essentially almost detached themselves yeah. from their grassroots. Um, I don't think there's any danger of that whatsoever in rugby. And I think those of us who have the privilege to work in the game passionately believe that creating a showcase for grassroots rugby is really what it's about. That's ultimate sustainability. You had a significant tenure at O2. The move to the States must have been a long thought about move, I'd imagine, from family reasons as well. But lots of people listening will know the fact that the average tenure of a CEO is 4.8 years or something along those lines. You were in a role for far longer than the average, it's fair to say, Ronan. And I'd be fascinated to get your insight as to that tenure length, as to why you were able to be in that position for far longer and you know, and, and basically how long you feel like it can require CEOs to become effective in what they do. So, yeah, a, any thoughts on the above? No, it's, a, it's a great question. And I do generally think that there is a danger in extended tenure of senior execs because I, I think the ability to bring the outside in to continually refresh and renew can sometimes wane in the later part of somebody's uh, tenure in role. In saying that, to some extent, I'm highlighting what I, I believe is um, the rationale for those who do survive longer is ultimately the job of a CEO or a chair, in my view, is to continue to bring the outside in. It's to refresh the premise on which the organization exists. And I was very privileged to work in O2 in a phase where the whole of the industry was defining itself. Again, going back to an interesting parallel, uh, the mobile phone industry was born at almost exactly the same time as the professional rugby industry, 1995. So it's not that old. Mm. So, you know, joining O2 in 2001 as BT essentially sold off all of its mobile assets, you know, in itself, an amazingly curious decision mm. to say that's not a future that we fancy at all. We'll leave it to somebody else. O2 ended up being worth more than its parent by the time it was acquired by Telefonica back in 2005. But I think this idea of tenure is that if there isn't constant renewal inside an organization, the organization goes stale 
And the best way of doing that is both people change, which is why maybe CEOs shouldn't stay too long, but also this idea of bringing the outside in. And one of the things that O2, very insightful, was that we believed we were a brand that ran a business, not a business that operated a brand. And what I mean by that is that we didn't see ourselves fixed as a telephony company or a technology company. We actually passionately believed we were an experienced business. And as such, as technology evolved and the experiences that technology enabled also evolved, we were on a cycle of innovation inside the organization, which I have to tell you, in 2016, it didn't feel like the organization that I'd been appointed CEO of in 2008 or had joined in 2001 felt like a very very different organization. So that idea of constant renewal, I think, is an essential ingredient. And the moment you see that wane, time for change. I was going to naturally get into that glorious word that lots of us refer to quite a bit and quite regularly, process. What would your process have been during that O2 phase, during your Verizon phase of getting that all-important balance right between how much change and new ideas to bring to the table whilst making sure that not too much people-related changes happening at one time because many people listening will go, yeah, if you try too much at one time, it can get pretty unpleasant or pretty unclean straight away. What was your pro- – was there a 1st of January every year, Ronan, it was a step back and like, right, or was it a services coming in to do some strength finder analysis? I'm talking pretty micro yeah. there, but it'd be great to hear how you went about that journey. Two, two quite distinct things. I agree broadly with the point that organizations need certainty and therefore that ability for people to convene around you know, a common set of objectives and say, I know what's expected of me and I can put my head down and go after it. I agree with that as a general point. However, I also believe that leadership happens at every level of an organization. And in some respects, if the leadership at the very top provides context throughout the organization, what you actually do is create confidence at each layer of the organization for people to exercise their judgment. If you're in retail, honestly, do you need somebody from the corporate head office to tell you what a great customer experience is in the retail store? The answer is no, you don't. But what you do need to know is, how does our organization make money? Well, many of the people listening wouldn't realize this is mobile phone companies do not make any money selling mobile phones, Mm. none whatsoever. Mm. And in fact, it's a, a cost to the business. It's a loss-making activity. So the idea of properly understanding, how does my business make money? How does my business differentiate itself from other businesses in its sector? I think can create the balance between the confidence of continuity of purpose, while at the same time, a space in everybody's job description to innovate. If you can get the balance of that right, I Mm -hmm. think you can have a really vibrant company. The day I was appointed CEO at O2, I stood up and I said in front of 500 people, in a town hall, not scripted. I said, my job is to be chief cheerleader and chief storyteller and to make each one of you the success you deserve to be. And I tried to live by that. And the second part is really important is I don't have all the answers. No CEO does. Mm -hmm. In many respects, CEOs are there to manage the residual uncertainty after the questions have been answered Mm -hmm. that have a black and white answer. So what you need to do is create the conditions in which people feel confident that they know what's expected of them and they have the space to succeed. If you do that, then I think this idea of process is it's a continuous process evolution. I don't say improvement, evolution. And then your organization is ready when the opportunities like the exclusive rights to the Apple iPhone 
one of our competitors who might be a red brand had spent nine months debating with Apple whether or not they should take that deal. We did a deal in eight days. Mm. Eight days. <laughs> Why? Because we passionately believed that we could make a difference if we had the rights to sell that product. Shows that sometimes if there is a will, there is absolutely a way to be able to do it, right? Well, Even the, with- BT, the BT Cellnet that I joined in 2001 had 11 and a half million customers. The day I left, we had 24 million direct and another 4 million uh, indirect, so 28 million customers. So guess what? You know, you can be in an environment where internal revolution as well as evolution can happen, provided you have the values that drive you. And I think, you know, Nike's insights and everyone's an athlete and things like that are really powerful and empowering insights, I think, inside the organization as well as with their customers. How much running and, as you say, not just running, but being a position within a business of those size, we try as much as absolutely possible to give total clarity and as much simplicity to our leaders as possible, where it's around, I don't want you with a list of 15 things you've got to do. And you mentioned one there, which stood out, right? And when you said about, well, how many customers we have went from this to that. When you're running a business of these sizes and these scales, I'd imagine it'd be pretty easy to make things very complicated and try and spin 15 plates of what good looks like at all times. Did you, were you a leader that always attempted to boil it down to one or two things? Like how how did that whole process work? So look, I, I think there's a couple of components to that is the first one is I think a lot of organizations confuse prioritization and choices. And writing everything down on a list and then periodically crossing out four and putting three or moving it down to 17, that's not an effective way to execute a, a business's strategy. So the idea of real choices. And a great example for me was at its very best, O2 had almost a golden touch in the sense that even our competitors believed that what we did must be right by virtue of the fact that we did it. And so we were able to lead the market and shape the market. And out of that came ideas like, oh, there's great extension in this brand. We could be in clothing. We could be in travel and leisure. And you know what? Maybe we could. But that was where the focus that I said, yes, we're in the experience business, but we're in the experience business where they're clearly line of sight enabled by the technology that we operate. And that did mean we could go to the O2 and we could be an experience brand at the O2, but it was because we were in a business that was that whole idea of, you know, recorded music. We had one of the first music players in the UK. There was a natural adjunct to our business who is going out and being the next Glastonbury and doing a festival or whatever else is. We partnered with people who did it and brought great O2 experiences, but we didn't go into a clothing line. We didn't go into travel and leisure. So there, I think, is a good example of sometimes successful businesses fall into the trap of believing that there's almost nothing they can't do. And I think if you look at the really great companies, particularly in the sectors that I've had experience of, look at Apple. I mean, Apple has never been first to market with a new piece of technology. Now, that might be a surprise to some of your listeners. Never been. Apple's job is to turn a technology into a differentiated user experience. Their commitment is to experience, not to technology. They didn't have the first 5G phone. They didn't have the first 4G phone. What they do is they take a technology and make it mass market, accessible, reliable, and experiential. 
What you've just described there is saying no to things. Yeah. Saying no to things. And I think with a business like ours that was three guys in a flat on a phone to begin with, and then you grow and grow and grow, and all of a sudden you've got lots of different offices and lots of different potential markets. It can get very, oh, this is shiny and new. What should we go after? And I think having the dedication of going, no, what do we want to be? How do we want to be experienced by customers is, is one of those questions that is easy to wander away from. I guess the, the thing, again, from dealing with businesses the size that you have been running is, what does that process look like? When you, you know, you have people coming up, guys, we should definitely be doing this because the customer's already there. They're ready to buy our, we should add our, add our lines there, add our lines here. How much is the, is the deciding process part of a panel of people at the top table running where you go, no, this is absolutely a team decision. How often was an interjection where you would say, okay, this is where I'm going to earn, <laughs> I'm going to earn my salary here. Guys, actually, I'm going to call it out and say I don't think we should be a part of that. Is it, is it always different per scenario or was there kind of a, a type of process that existed? I think very large organizations are able to deal with this for the simple reality that it may not be big enough to matter. So to put it in context, Verizon, Verizon Wireless or Verizon Consumer, the two businesses that I ran, $93 billion of turnover, 110 million customers. So somebody says, I've got this great idea, and after 15 (laughs) years, it will do 50 million. Well, it's kind of easy Mm. to be discerning there and say, you know what? So I would, and where these are dangerous words, sometimes people misunderstand it. But I think the first challenge is saying something, it's a worthy idea, but is it worthy of, and insert O2, insert Verizon, you know, insert X4, insert whoever. That, I think, is a thing. And what that does is it ties you back to your purpose and your reason for existing. Guess what? O2 exists today still because it chose a different path. Vodafone was number one in the marketplace when I started in telecoms. Hmm. Vodafone is just announcing that it's doing a merger with three to come from last in the market. That's the reality of somebody having to change because the market around them has changed and they didn't change at the same pace. Whereas O2 has sold itself from being the lowest performing to the best performing and consistently so because it found its purpose and it was consistent in executing against it, which was to deliver experiences that customers truly valued. We can all deliver experiences, but that customers truly value, I'll let you into a secret. Things that customers value, they pay for. Remarkable, really. And then you get growth, then you get sustainable investment patterns and you continue to innovate on behalf of the customer. A question that's just jumped in my head is the businesses that make it most regularly into the media space. You're thinking about your Jeff Bezos's to your Musk's to your Jobs, Steve Jobs when he was alive. These charismatic, eccentric, often highly unreasonable, highly demanding individuals. But as we all know, the vast majority of the corporate world doesn't exist with characters such as that. O2's finding its purpose. And this we're not a technology business. We are we set out to be able to create this experience that customers really love. I don't know how regularly you guys did surveys on that, but I would assume that an average staff member in an average store or working a call center, would they be aware of like O2's grand long-term purpose? Or does that sit with the 10, 20, 30 of the most senior executives within the business. It'd be fascinating to hear how you go making sure that for, right from the a trainee walk into O2, were they like, no, no, we know the purpose here. Or is that not realistic? Look, in a way, purpose is a dirty word because it's something that, you know, is painted on the wall and people, you know, doff their cap as they walk past. Yeah. 
it's got to exist. It's got to be, you know, I love, I love the definition of culture, that culture is what happens when people aren't looking. So the culture in O2 was one where people said, we have a mandate to make a difference to customers. And guess what? I don't have to turn around and ask my boss. I'm going to do the right thing. Now, do you train people what the right thing is? Do you train them to be able to do that in a cost-efficient way? Of course you do. That's good business sense. But O2, when it came out of BT, started off by saying, so what are our values? And they were bold, open, trusted, and clear. And that's a classic corporate values thing. And then we built around that, essentially, the customer promise. And I'll let you into a secret. Everybody in the organization knew the customer promise. We never put it on a decal in a window. We never wrote it on the back of the crew door in the call center or in the store. Why? Because if you had to write it up on the wall, it wasn't happening. It wasn't real. The tangible evidence of a network you can rely on, the service you deserve, you know, the best ranges, range of devices, great value, no catch. We actually introduced and committed to it in all the time I was there that says the best offers are only available to existing customers. We never, ever offer a better deal to a new customer than to an existing one. Loads of brands have tried it and then walked away because it's too expensive to align behind. Well, in the mobile phone industry, tenure, churn, and what people's average uh, monthly spend is are the only two variables that matter. In the nicest possible way, all the other KPIs don't matter. The longer you stay, the happier you are, the more you spend. It's exactly the same as Ritz-Carlton. That's exactly their model. An average loyal Ritz-Carlton customer spends eight times as many nights in a Ritz-Carlton hotel as the average person spends in any one branded group from a hotel point of view. Mm. Why? Because they keep coming back. So they choose to spend their money in that place because they know what they're going to get. So that idea of building out, not decals on windows, not stuff that you write up with a sign writer. It's the stuff that people believe. I'm empowered to do the right thing. And I know what it is. It's what the customer values. It is great value, no catch. It is a network you can rely on. It is service, the service you deserve. So we empowered a whole population inside the organization to not just know what to do, but believe they were empowered to do the right thing. Mm. And that's incredibly powerful when you get it right. Yeah, highly interesting, Ronan, as I, as I knew this conversation was going to be. One of the things I was also really looking forward to asking you about was absolutely the differences between being a chief exec in a UK-operated role versus then doing the move to that teeny tiny business you described before with their very low turnover and all these bits and pieces in the States. <laughs> Why was the timing right? Were there any things that surprised you even though I'm sure you had a pretty well-connected network where you could chat to people that had done the move before and people that were over there. Yeah, were there any things that surprised you about the differences between UK-led versus US-led? So I would say, actually, the difference between management culture in the US and Europe is probably bigger, not less, than people imagine. And really driven by a couple of things. I've, I've worked with a lot of great business leaders in my career And I've understood those very, what I would describe as strong, dominant individuals who've set the vision and the purpose and really directed an organization in a very personal but authentic way. In the US, that was very much the style. One or two or maximum three people in the organization pretty much determined everything. And the rest of the organization was focused around consistent, high-quality execution. What I had seen in Europe particularly 
in the zeros and coming into the 2010 and beyond is that um, a new generation of leaders who had very much seen this idea of empowerment, about delegation, about teamship, which had created this idea to be an effective leader, you need to have an effective team. You create the conditions where the best people want to be part of that opportunity. And by bringing them together, I always believe that the definition of a successful team is one that by harnessing the talents that the individuals have delivers outcomes that that team and only that team could achieve because it's the blend of the inputs creates differentiated outcomes. And that was almost absent in my early experience in the US. It was much more still that dominant, strong, you know, powerful and good leadership, but very much a, don't you worry, I'll tell you what to do, just follow my lead Mm. sort of thing. And personally, I think there's a challenge in that for two reasons. One is I don't believe it addresses the talent base that's growing rapidly around our younger uh, employees. You know, the digitally native employees are essentially being brought into businesses that are being run like an analog business in a digital world. And so this idea of very hierarchical, very structured, I think militates against the skills and competencies that we're creating Mm. in a well-educated, well-developed, not just workforce, but community and society. So my view very strongly was, and my experience from O2 was, that if you can harness the talent and essentially match talent to opportunity and do it in a much less hierarchical way, you liberate uh, innovation, you liberate differentiation, but you also liberate job satisfaction Mm. in a really genuine way. Mm. Our staff turnover in O2 was close to zero. We had part-timers who had started as students in university just getting six or eight hours so they could pay the bills in college, still working for the organization 15, 20, 25 years later. Mm. We had more than 50% of the employees in um, the retail space were part-time. And as a result of that, we had more women than we had men working in retail, most unusual for the telco space. Mm. We'd created the conditions where people felt they could execute, get well-paid and fairly paid, but actually feel like they were part of a winning team. And I think that difference between the US model of a top-down, do and I will reward you financially, versus do and I will make create a place where you will want to bring your best self every day, I actually think that's an opportunity for Europe versus the US. Yeah, some thought-provoking stuff. Um, one of the things that I was hoping you might have, uh, and I'd imagine you would do, Ronan, have one or two elements to share about, is that the numbers of what you started with at O2 as a customer base where you finished, oh, that must have been, it was just a lovely straight line, ha, ha, ha. As we all know that, um, well, I've seen so far, there's chapters and there's bumps and there's economic cycles. I mean, crikey, we're an interesting one as it stands at the moment. The resilience that a senior leader needs in in their working life is going to be quite significant. I didn't know if there were one or two standout areas in relation to when you really needed to show it that would be interesting for. Very happy to share. I had one like catastrophic failure in the middle of my uh, tenure at uh, at O2. But before I go into that, one real insight for me in learning. I have been the CFO. I'm an chartered accountant by background. I'd worked in banking in the city. So I had a kind of financial background. I learned the rest of my skills through a a variety of corporates that I worked with and a lot of it at O2. But when I became CEO, I was appointed at the beginning of 2008. And the first three or four months were really hard for me. 
because I fell into a trap. And I share it because it's a learning that I think might resonate with others. I believed that the job of CEO was different from any other job I'd ever done, which nominally it is. And as a result, I spent my first few months challenging myself as to how would other people have done it, people that I had admired, people who had been leaders that maybe who had mentored or coached me in my career. And what I realized after three or four months was that I had essentially persuaded myself that none of my previous 20 odd years of experience was relevant. And I was looking for this gap when the real insight of authentic leadership, and it's kind of obvious when you say it is, the best role to try and play is your best self. And as soon as I realized that actually my 20 years of experience, even though it said CFO or banker or said hamburger flipper and McDonald's, was every bit as germane and relevant to me being a CEO as any other experience was. And almost overnight, the profile of my leadership changed. And I just got back the confidence to say, guess what? Yeah, I've been in this situation before. I might not have been the person who was making the final arbiter of the decision, but I sat in that meeting. I influenced the conversation. I knew what the context was. So I would just say to anyone who's listening, just understand that every experience is relevant experience. Make sure you don't label it and put it away and actually block yourself from getting the rich experience. The other thing that's the dirty little secret of CEOs is when you become the CEO, nobody ever asks you a question that they know the answer to. Because guess what? They keep those to themselves. So the first day I was the CEO, I thought, oh, shoot, I now need to know the answer to the questions I didn't know yesterday. It's not true. The role of a CEO is not to answer the questions that your staff delegate up. It's to manage the residual uncertainty associated with questions that don't have a black and white answer. It's a mm-hmm. fundamentally different thing. So don't worry about the fact that you don't know the answer, because the chances are if you've got the right team, the questions that do have a clear answer have been dealt with. And what you're left with is the residual risk. And guess what? The reward for risk is profit. That's what companies do. So again, that understanding. So now to the catastrophic uh, (laughs) failure. I learned. Having lived and learned in that phase, I was the CEO in the summer of 2010, if my memory serves me. We had 17.9 million customers at the time, and the network switched off. And I mean, switched off. So we lost about 7.9 million of the customers. And when I say lost is, we lost track of them. Their phones disappeared off the network. They couldn't use them. We didn't know where they were. Normally, if you have a network failure, what happens is the cell site in SW1 goes down because something happens, an antenna gets blown down, or a wire gets cut by some guy digging the road really easy. And everybody, yes, quite rightly bitches about it, but you're able to go back and say, look, we've lost the tower in such and such. Usually there's overlapping coverage, whatever. So we had this, what the hell is happening? And every hour, more customers disappeared off the network and didn't come back. And this was crisis. I mean, serious crisis. So we got to a point that after 19 hours, I sat down with the comms director of the group, and I was already in touch with my chairman in Madrid, Telefonica, who were the owners at that stage of the of, of O2. And the most commonly asked question on the telephone was, has the boss resigned? And if not, why hasn't he resigned? So the crisis had moved from being, it's a mess of a few unhappy customers to the febrile atmosphere of the media had got onto it. And really, they just they wanted a head on a plate. And that was all they were at. So 
you can imagine the scene. Two satellite trucks sitting outside the building and the Bath Road in Slough, just waiting for the moment when, yes, he has resigned and I'll do live from Bath Road <laughs> after defenestrating the CEO of O2 or whatever. So you can imagine it focuses the mind. And my engineers were working away and they didn't know the answer. And subsequently, obviously, we, we found out. But the lesson, and if, if I may, is that at a moment in time of crisis, you actually have the opportunity to have the most impact. So I sat down with the comms director and he said, for crisis management, you need to know the answer to four questions. You need to know what happened. You need to know why did it happen. You need to know how do you make sure it never happens again. And when you've done those three things, you need to explain to customers how you're going to make it up to them. And I said, fantastic, small problem. 19 hours in, they don't know the answer to any of those questions. So what do I do? Do I just resign because it's the right thing to do? And I made the decision that, no, I shouldn't because I was accountable and I wanted to hold myself to account. And somebody afterwards might decide my fate. But in the moment, I wanted to be in there and I wanted to stand four square with our customers and be accountable. So I made an, an executive decision, which is good as the CEO. So I rang up the then CEO of Sky and I said, you're our largest corporate customer. You're also a broadcaster. People want my head in the plate. You're not very happy with me at the moment because your staff can't use the, their phones. So I'm going to give you guys the exclusive interview live. You happen to have a truck already outside the door, so you, you won't take you that long. So they patched me into Kay Burley Live. And so Kay came on and said, oh, well, this is a bit of a something show. First thing, I suppose, you I'm, I'm surprised you haven't resigned already, but I, I presume at least before you resign, you're going to apologize to customers. And so I said, okay, firstly, thank you for the opportunity. And you're absolutely right. This is completely unacceptable. So if I may, I just want to address myself to all of the O2 customers who are watching and listening and say, I apologize unreservedly. And I went on and I said, and further, Kay, if I was tuning in, I think I'd want to know the answer to four questions. I'd want to know what happened. I'd want to know why did it happen. I'd want to know how on earth you're going to make sure that this never happens again. And by the way, when you've sorted it all out, I hope you're going to make it up to me. And guess what, Kay? That's what I, my senior executive, and 250 of the most qualified engineers in the whole of our industry are focused on. And that's what we're going to do. And she turned around and said, what's well, refreshingly reassuring and honest from a CEO? And essentially, inadvertently, not let me off the hook, but acknowledged that she, as the average viewer listener, that's exactly what she would have wanted. Mm. An hour or two later, we worked out what the problem was. We started to get the service back up and I survived. But I survived because I focused on the customer, not on the narrative that the media wanted to create. And people yeah. said, O2 always looks after its customers. They always focus on the customer. People come out on social media and said, the reason why other people are so hacked off is it never happens at O2. Let me tell you, if you were a customer of X or Y, you wouldn't even be troubling to make a complaint or ring up or bitch about it on social media, because guess what? You'd be so used to it by now. When you come out and say, I'm in the mud with you and I'm not resting until and there's an authenticity to it. Doesn't that create an awful lot when it comes to like, people can see that this isn't, because corporate talk is so yeah. painful, Ronan. There's so many people that are good at it. You think, I've heard you for five minutes. I, I can't remember a single thing you've said. Whereas you went, it's specific. I'm in the mud with you and I'm not resting. And this is what my duty is. But, but the authenticity of it was that it resonated not just with customers, 
but it resonated with staff. And people actually said, that is what I would expect O2. And the point I made afterwards, because it actually ended up being used as a case study for crisis management in the UK (laughs) by a number of organizations. The truth was, you cannot make up your promise and commitment to customers in the moment of crisis. What you can do is live by your commitment to customers in a moment of crisis. And the point I made to all of our colleagues afterwards was, everything we had done for the previous 10 years was reflected in the way not just we as an organization were able to respond, but how our customers reacted to us. They trusted us. They believed. They were fans. And fans forgive. Customers never forget. Fans forgive. And that was the difference. So we lived not by our management of a crisis, but our truth to our values in a moment of crisis. We created this podcast two and a half years ago because we wanted to have a non-journalistic approach to knowing what a growth business looks like, feels like, its different chapters, the honesty around it being learning, not just failing. What we say to all of our staff on day one when they join us often as a 21, 22-year-old, Ronan is empowering people to succeed, which is the ethos is that we totally empower you to fail. It's the only way you're going to learn effectively, right? One of the things you've just demonstrated there is that in a much, much larger organization. But the thing that I would be liking to know is this is all you doing things extremely effectively. We started the podcast because we wanted to have a a listener base that goes, oh, I've really learned something in that conversation. I've taken some bits away. That's the only reason that this exists Mm. amongst the millions of podcasts that there are. Your learning and your own development during that last 20 years plus or whatever, has has there been one or two surefire ways that you've done it, Ronan? Has it been reading at every moment God spends? Has it been a brilliant mentor that's guided you through it? Has it been executive education? Is it a blend of all these things? Is it just speaking to people a lot? It's always great to get an insight. So a couple of things I would I would offer is great leaders aren't always as good listeners as they are talkers. And I think refreshing the narrative all the time. And you know, people who know me know that I like the sound of my own voice, but people who know me will also say that they find it remarkable how good a listener I am and how good a memory I have. And the thing that's helped me throughout my career is, and I absolutely ascribe it to my chartered accountancy qualification, which might surprise people, is I process information and data. I'm a 15-year-old curious kid. I'm fascinated by absolutely everything. And I just bring, it's like a tsunami of, of insights, information, whatever else. And I collate it all the time. And I think what my training as an accountant has allowed me to do is to index it in a way that it's very, very accessible, that I can pull it from where I need to. And I honestly believe context is the absolute weapon of power. So much we react to situations and we leave context behind. And guess what? If you've got context, chances are you spend a little time, a little longer thinking about what exactly the question is. And the more you think about the question, the chances are the closer you are to the answer. Mm. Big corporates love to be seen to galvanize themselves into action. Mm. But ready, aim, fire is an awful lot better strategy than ready, fire, aim. And I have to tell you, I've seen a ton of large corporates who execute on a ready, fire, aim strategy. And guess what? They galvanize people. They run up a hill. And then they realize that might not have been the hill they were supposed to run up. You mentioned the kind of, it seems like a bit of a light bulb moment when you began at the O2. And I can relate enormously to that journey. And the, blimey, the CEOs are, 
job and a half. And yeah, it's a pretty unique vantage point, this. And oh, there's lots I'm not very good at. Well, stop worrying about that stuff and get on with where you want to be taking things, how you're going to listen and how to make sure you keep everyone aligned under that banner. Is there been an approach with the roles that you did after the O2 from your first CEO ship with all that background behind you, Ronan, Verizon, Six Nations? Have you since then gone into every new job asking a set of questions before you do anything? I realize that's a pretty unique question, uh, but has there been a process to good CEO ship yeah. since then? So whether it be CEO, whether it be a strategic advisor, whether it be even a non-exec director now in some of the things I do or a chair, there's three elements. And in some respects, it's not a comprehensive lessons of leadership, although I've also tried to collate those over my career as well and actually published six lessons of leadership at the beginning of the, uh, the pandemic. But I tried to challenge myself as what are the three things that you do that are different that will be the value add in any situation? The first is every strategy needs context. And it's remarkable how many times people think success is I've defined the strategy. Well, actually, it's the context in which you're going to execute it that matters. The second thing is organizational alignment to strategy. Biggest weakness in most organizations is they've articulated the strategy, they have the organization they inherited, and they haven't actually matched the two up. And the third is, guess what? Now that you've aligned the first two, almost certainly you need to change the talent mix to be able to execute against that strategy as efficiently as possible. So what I try to do now is apply those three lenses to any situation I find myself in. And the weight between the three might be different in each organization, but the net result is it's not what you do, it's what you make happen. You're essentially working on a model of empowerment. Are we clear in our strategy exactly what it is we're trying to achieve? and the context in which we're trying to achieve it, i.e. the competitive reality, the commercial reality, et cetera. We are? Great. Now, do we have what it takes? And what it takes is an organization lined up behind it. And one of the things I used to do as a CEO was I would measure the last 60 days and the next 90 days. And I would say, did I actually spend my time doing the things that I said to the team at the beginning of the year were the things that were most important. So I held myself very much to account of, am I allocating my resource proportionate to the size and scale of the opportunities and challenges in the business? And even when you know that that process is going to happen, it's remarkable yeah. how often you fail when you do the review at the end of the 60 days and think, shoot, but it's only 60 days since I last did it. And I've still managed to underweight in this area or this area. And I always had a list, the things that only the CEO can do. Because the CEO can be all over a lot of things, but you then confuse what are the corporate objectives and the corporate goals and yours? What's the list of things that only the CEO can do? And I'll give you an example. I spent more time in Brussels helping the uh, development of the first ever privacy directive inside the EU. And you think, well, why would you bother doing that? The privacy directive essentially is one of the most important things that every single company in Europe has to deal with every single day. It's called GDPR now, it wasn't then. But the US has CCPA. I can tell you I was the only CEO in the telco space who was spending time out there. Didn't Not to the expense of other things in my business, but what I realized was I can't send anybody else out. Nobody will listen. But I had two commissioners who would see me whenever I went out. The rapporteur, which is the person who actually writes up the draft legislation, would meet me and sit down and listen. 
Those are the sort of things that only a CEO can do. Mm. And if you don't have a list of things that only the CEO can do, maybe you're not being the CEO. Final question before my quick fire to scaling and expanding. Yeah. When numbers are going well, when they're not, there are some corporate level ambitions to be able to be taking more of markets, to be able to get to new regions, for example, and scaling and expanding can be done extremely badly as well as it being done extremely well. Be interesting to get your insight in relation to from the businesses that you've seen and experience you've had, how it's maybe done badly versus the other way around. Well, it's interesting because I, I do think growth is like, like a vitamin. Um, its absence almost certainly diminishes mm. the prowess of the organization. You know, you want to be part of a winning team. So growth is an essential ingredient. So I do agree. And it's harder for big organizations. You know, if you're in a $93 billion turnover business, it means you have to create a FTSE 100 company every year to have grown by 4 or 5%, just to put it in context. Some good numbers. That's a challenge. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Even for the U.S. market with its size, that's a challenge. So you've got to understand that growth is an essential ingredient of a healthy organization. And then what you've got to do is you've got to think about, well, what does that actually mean? And what I found was, how do you define your marketplace? Very often, we all fall into the trap of we thinking, that's the market and that's where growth is. And therefore, I have to get 2% more of that. And actually, O2 was acquired by Telefonica. First time I presented after the um, acquisition, I was the CFO at the time, I talked about market share. And somebody said, no, no, we have your market share at 13%. You said it's 25. And I said, no, it's definitely 25. And they said, oh, you mean mobile market share as opposed to telecoms market share. Why? Because they ran fixed line businesses and mobile businesses. Well, O2 was a pure mobile play. But the point was, it's telecoms. You're not selling technology. Mm -hmm. You're selling the enablement. So guess what? We had a 13% market share, not a 25%. Now, if you have 13% market share, is there a growth opportunity? So we went out and bought a broadband business called B, a little tiny broadband business, which I then subsequently sold to Sky, made a very nice turn on that, uh, on that transaction. But defining what your market is, because sometimes you constrain yourself by artificially defining your market mm -hmm. and actually reducing the scope of addressable opportunities. So okay. that's what I would say to you is keep refreshing your definition of the market. And if you're in the experience business, it doesn't matter whether it's fixed or mobile. It's telecoms, it's connectivity, it's connecting you to the people and things that matter. doesn't matter how you do it. Really interested to know, I mentioned one or two things earlier on about this area, but has there been one book, podcast or movie that you'd recommend that you've taken some long-lasting learns from? No is the honest answer. And I'll tell you why. I'm very aware. I have the world's largest collection, very often with the flyleaf endorsed, of business books. And I'm proud to say I've read none of them. I'm really wary of people being taught how somebody else would have done it yeah. in that situation. Yeah. And I don't say that with an, I sincerely with an ounce of arrogance. I just don't believe it's a route to authenticity for most leaders to learn how other things. What I've done is, I'm an observer. I'm curious. So I've learned every day is a learning day, mm. but it's by observing what goes on around me. And the one thing I would say is old fashioned, but I think it's unbelievably true. You just set down your values, you live by them. Because guess what? If you're consistent every single day, it's remarkable what a solid platform it creates for you. If you aren't, you'll get found out spectacularly. If there was one learn, Ronan, that you'd like our listeners to take away today, senior, le uh, senior leaders listen to the pod, 
what would that one learn be? I think I think I might know what, what angle, but so there's a there's there's a few things. But if I may, on one, the biggest insight, liberating insight, is it's not what you do, it's what you make happen, because your output is finite, but your impact and influence can be infinite, and increasingly, the opportunity is to share and create the context in which other people can see that opportunity and be successful. So honestly, it's not what you do, it's what you make happen. That's the biggest insight of all. Ronan, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your journey and your leadership learns with us today. Um, I know that there'll be absolutely loads that resonated with the listeners and like me, with pages of notes in front of me, they'll be taking away some valuable ideas. Thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network. Ronan, thanks so much for coming in again. An absolute pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity.